as we turn our hearts and our attention to the very Word of God this morning, would you bow with me as we seek the Lord and we ask Him to fill our minds and our hearts with the wonders and the truth and the goodness and the beauty of His gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We pray acknowledging our total dependence upon you, Father, to understand, to hear, to apply, to appropriate the riches of your word, that they wouldn't just be words on a page, they wouldn't just be information for our brains, but they would be the very, as Peter confessed before the Lord, the very words of eternal life, so that they would be the words of life to our bodies and souls, and we would live by them. And so, Father, we ask that you give us your spirit, that you illumine, that you open up and make clear to us not only the meaning, but the application of your holy word. We depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, our guide, our counselor, to lead and guide us into all the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles, or the words will be projected up on the wall here, to Mark chapter 8. Our reading this morning, the reading upon which the teaching is based, is Mark 8, 27 to chapter 9, verse 1. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And friends, this is the very word of God. Well, you guys all know how I love sports and how baseball is my favorite sport. But I gotta admit, there's, well, there's actually two times a year, March Madness, but now, where I'll watch basketball. All season long, I ignore the NBA. But now I will watch the NBA Finals. I will watch Cleveland and Golden State go at it, and I think it's great bat, I don't like the rest of the season when they don't even play defense and they take rests. Do I get to take rests? I mean, they, they shouldn't be taking rests. Okay? And you go out. Now, one of the things, you watch basketball and you do, and I'll watch it, and I'll take my nap this afternoon so I can stay up late tonight and watch game two. And afterwards, 
you'll see they'll all be, they'll interview the coaches and the players. So you got LeBron James and you got Steph Curry and you got Kevin Durant. And inevitably, they will each talk about the major play, the major call, this one thing that was, and you'll hear them say, now listen, if you stay up late tonight, listen for this. They'll go, this was the turning point of the game. The entire game hinged upon this ref's bad call. Or the entire game hinged upon this turning point. Now you're going, there goes Jeff again, giving another sports illustration. What in the world does this have to do with the text that we're looking at? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm about to answer that question. Okay, Jesus has just, let's put this in context, what we're looking at in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has just healed the blind man in Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the text we're looking at this morning says he went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is all the way up north near Mount Hermon, which is the source of the Jordan River. By car ride today, it would take you two hours to get there. And Jesus is traveling and walking with them from Bethsaida, where he healed the blind man, with his leadership community, and he is going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So why did Jesus take his disciples all the way up there? Because we've hit the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. It is here that we get a vision of where we've come. You can look back, and where we've come is looking at the fact of who is this Jesus? Who is this King? What is he all about? Who is his identity, his purpose, his agenda? So we look back, and also we look forward. Where are we going from here? And is here where the kingdom mission turns into a Messiah mission. This is the hinge upon which the entire gospel, the arc, the narrative of the gospel of Mark turns, where it goes from who is this king to what is this king all about. And it hinges and it turns on the question Jesus asks and the confession he receives. Who do people say that I am? And then more pointedly, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives a confession. Shorter here in the Gospel of Mark, because Mark's style, as I've shared from the beginning, is very quick, very pointed, very pithy. He doesn't go into what Matthew went into when Peter made his confession. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against her. But here simply when... Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Mark goes, or Peter goes, excuse me, you are the Christ. We want to ask ourselves three questions of this text as we look at this turning point. And what we're doing is we're finishing the first half of the Gospel of Mark today. And we're going to take a break for the summer. And we're going to look at a couple different things. And we're going to start a new series next week. So you all leaders, when the students come, new series. They don't have to catch up on eight chapters on the Gospel of Mark. We're starting, and I won't even tell you what it is yet. You'll have to come back next week to hear, okay? And then the rest, and you're welcome back to come in the fall if you want, but I think you'll be going to your campuses. But for the rest of you, we're going to come back and do the second half of the Gospel of Mark after Labor Day in the fall. But as we come to the end of the first half of the Gospel of Mark and we come to Peter's confession of Christ, we want to ask three questions of this text. What is the meaning of this confession? Then we want to ask, what is the meaning of this confession for Jesus? Because there are implications in Jesus' life, and he's very plain about what they are. Then we want to ask, what is the meaning of this confession for us? Because he's very plain about what the implications, if you confess Christ, 
he is very plain and very forthright and very pointed of what it means for our life. So what is the meaning of the confession? What does it mean for Jesus? What does it mean for us? Look with me at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered, some John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And now he brought it home and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. What does it mean for Peter to confess you are the Christ? The word literally means Messiah or anointed or the one sent from God. So in other words, the one that was anticipated, that was prophesied, that was foreshadowed, that was looked forward to, that he has come now and fulfilled. So as one commentator put it, it's about the politically dangerous and theologically risky claim that Jesus is the true king of Israel the final heir to the throne of David, the one before whom Herod Antipas and all other would-be Jewish princelings are just shabby little imposters. Why was this so dangerous? Why so risky and why so politically dangerous? Well, one interesting fact to recognize, and I, I can't help but think Jesus was very purposeful in his doing this, when he took them from Bethsaida and took them to Caesarea Philippi, There happened to be a prominent temple in and around Caesarea Philippi that was a temple in honor to the newest pagan god. You've got to remember in that Greco-Roman culture, and for those of you who want to learn more, I'll uh, point you to Andrew's Discipleship Hour class. But one thing you have to recognize in the culture that Mark was writing, Jesus was teaching, in and around Caesarea Philippi, there was a new temple to a pagan god. The pagan god happened to be the Roman emperor. Jesus is taking his disciples right to that area and announcing God's kingdom right before that pagan temple to the Roman emperor. In other words, what is he doing? He is saying there is no other god but he. There is no other lord but he. There is no other king but he. He is announcing his kingdom and he is in the most radical way possible claiming to be the true king. And that means that every other contender, so to speak, is false and is an impostor. Look at what this is claiming, what this is actually saying. As one writer says, the long hoped for moment when God would rule Israel and ultimately the world with justice and mercy, the justice and mercy that the Old Testament had looked forward to, that the Old Testament scriptures had spoken of, and for which Israel had longed, Jesus is claiming that time, that history, that moment is now. It is fulfilled, and it is fulfilled in him. Now let's apply this for a minute. What does that mean for us? Because this challenges us with a question. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus could be pointing the question to you. Who do you say that I am? And you might be saying, well, look at this text. It's saying that he's divine. That's true. It is saying that. It's saying that he's the second person of the Trinity. That's true. He is that. And it is saying that. But that's not all that it's saying. It is saying that he is the true king. 
And that means it is challenging our functional view of who is king in your life. And think about what a king does. A king is not a democracy. A king calls the shots. A king is not a co-pilot. A king demands radical, complete, unyielding obedience. And is Jesus your king? Not just is he divine. Yes, he is divine. No one's denying that. But he is more than that. Or are you still calling the shots in your life? Are you still insisting on your own rights? Because this text is basically saying you don't have your, any rights. It's the fulfillment. Remember back, and you always have to take and look at everything in light. We're going to do this throughout this passage. In light of the Old Testament. The book of Judges. I quote this verse often, Judges 21, verse 25. End of the book of Judges, when it says, In those days Israel had no king. So in other words, stating a fact and even implying they need a king. We need a king. We don't need a president, we need a king. And then it says, In those days Israel had no king, and the result was everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is such an important verse, because it doesn't say everyone was immoral, Everyone was off doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was just crazy, you know. It says, everyone did what made sense to themselves. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, what was practical, what looked and seemed right. And Jesus is saying, you have to give up the shots. Even in the outset of this confession, the meaning is that Jesus is asking people to give up their lives. He's going to make it even more pointed and more explicit as we go through this. But he's asking people, if you confess Jesus is the Christ, that doesn't just mean believing the truth he's divine. It means you give up your relationships. It means you give up your conceptions of the world. It means you give up the practices that flow from your conceptions of the world. It means you give up what is right in your own eyes in order to follow him in unreserved commitment and allegiance. In other words, one cannot cling to this life and also serve the redemptive plan of God. One philosopher, and I certainly don't recommend you go out and buy his books and don't re recommend you read them, but I am going to quote him real quick. But Soren Kierkegaard, he had a famous book, and in this book he said, purity of heart, here's how he defined purity of heart, he said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And I remember reading a letter a long time ago that Jack Miller, the founder of World Harvest Mission, wrote to a missionary friend about this very quote. He said, well, that statement's not true at all if that one thing is to do your own will. Purity of heart might be to will one thing, and purity of heart before God is only if that one thing is the will of God. That's what the confession, you are the Christ, means. Are you still calling the shots? Which leads to the second point. What is the meaning of the confession for Jesus? I remember reading a long time ago, Jesus is a king who takes his own medicine. Look with me at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, this isn't a parable. He laid it out there. I don't think Peter liked it too much because Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now take a look at this. The text says Jesus began to teach them, meaning this is a new point. He's beginning something, kind of like a teacher who's teaching math, and you build one point on the other. You have to do two plus two equals four before you get to calculus. You've got to get to multiplication before you get to everything's building. Jesus is beginning to teach him. He's moving on to a new point. And what is that new point? That new point is there is danger, and I'm about to go headlong into it. There's danger, and I am on purpose, because he says the Son of Man doesn't just say will suffer, but says must suffer. You know, it's interesting. I read several different commentaries preparing for each week's sermon. I came upon one this week that quoted Charlie Brown. I thought, oh, make sure it doesn't commit heresy. No good. All right, I'm quoting Charlie Brown. I can't miss that. And he quotes Charlie Brown as saying, winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. And then he went on to say, Jesus seems to be saying he was going to lose. Now put yourself in Peter's mind. The text says the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must die. That this is the only way for evil to be defeated. This is the only way for the kingdom to come. This is the only way for salvation to be accomplished. The only way for the reconciliation of all things to God. The restoration of the world for this to come. And this is too much for Peter to handle. Because this rocks his worldview to the core. Now Peter's not going back on his confession. He's not saying, oh, I don't confess that you're the Messiah, that you're the Christ. But from Peter's perspective, Messiahs don't get killed by the authorities. Messiahs come in and they take over. Yeah, we're, could you imagine, I think Peter's coming in to Caesarea Philippi. Here's the pagan temple before the Roman emperor. And Peter's going, yeah, here we go. Take no prisoners. We're coming. Here we go. And now Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer, be crucified, die, and be risen. And Peter's going, my mind is blown. I can't handle this. No way. If you are a Messiah who gets killed by the authorities, you know what that means in Peter's worldview? It means you're a false Messiah. And Peter's going, that can't be the case. He knows that Jesus is not a false Messiah, but he doesn't know exactly what kind of Messiah Jesus is. See, do we? And so Jesus does what? He calls him out. He calls it satanic. He directly tells Peter that he doesn't have his mind set on the things of God, but on the things of God's enemy, the accuser. What a difficult thing it is to try to get practical on. Because none of us likes to get called out. None of us get, likes to be told we're wrong. But sometimes it's necessary. And we need to be very careful about deciding when and how, and especially in the toxic culture that we live in today. But Jesus here calls out Peter because this is not a tertiary or peripheral issue. The Son of Man, of necessity, Going to the cross to be rejected, to be killed, and dying is not a peripheral issue. It is a salvation issue. But think about what this would have looked like. 
for the original disciples, hearing this within their worldview of the Old Testament scriptures, I'm sure Daniel 7 would have come to mind because they're hearing and Jesus is taking the title upon himself, a very important title. He is referring to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man has direct allusions to Daniel chapter 7 where it says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, look at what was promised to this this Son of Man. And Peter knows this scripture. To him was promised, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as one scholar puts it, this language of the Son of Man alluding to Daniel 7 where the Son of Man represents God's people as they are suffering at the hands of pagan enemies. And it's promising that he will eventually be vindicated. But after his suffering, as God sets up his kingdom at last. And what is Jesus doing here? He is both warning his followers that this is how he understands both his vocation and his destiny as Israel's representative and that they must be prepared to follow in his steps. The coming of God's kingdom with power has a lot more to do with the radical defeat of deep-rooted evil than with the destruction of the good world that God made and loves. Jesus seems to think that evil will be defeated and the kingdom will come precisely through his own suffering and death. This leads us to the next question. Are you prepared to follow? Mark seems to think that being a Christian, his definition of a Christian, confessing Christ, is not simply a matter of believing certain truths about Jesus. That's a bare minimum. Don't get me wrong. You you can't believe whatever you want about Jesus. You have to believe the truth, but it doesn't stop there. Mark seems to be saying that it is much more that is about following Jesus. Are you willing to? to follow? Are you prepared to follow in his steps? Which leads to the next point. There is a cost. What does this confession mean for you and me? What does it mean for us? In verse 34 says, he called to the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me. He's given an invitation. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And of course, how will the kingdom of God come with it power? There are many who believe that this is referring to the return of Christ, but many more commentators believe that this coming of the kingdom of God with power has reference to Jesus' resurrection, vindication, and ascension into glory, followed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and the multiplication of the church to the ends of the earth. 
And Jesus is saying that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God with the resurrection and the ascension and the ruling and reigning Christ as king of the whole world. And what does it mean for us? I'm afraid too often the way we normally understand and apply this is not a very hard saying at all, not difficult or challenging at all. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross We too often, I'm afraid, say, we too often water it down when we say, for example, well, I'm going through this affliction, I'm going through this trial, uh, whatever's happening, and I'm not minimizing affliction and trial. I'm not immune to them. But when we go, uh, this is just the cross I have to bear. If we use it in this watered-down sense, we lose sight of its literal meaning and what it meant especially to the original disciples. See, in a time like ours when capital punishment is so rare, extraordinary, and so controversial, it's difficult even for us to be able to paraphrase the saying of our Lord's in terms of ordinary experience. Just to give one example, one illustration, in Western culture, in fact, scholars give examples of Britain long ago. Capital punishment was formally carried out publicly The condemned criminal would be led through the streets on foot or dragged on a cart to the place of execution where the crowds can watch the grim procession and they knew what lay at the end of the road. A person on the way to public execution like this was compelled to abandon all earthly hopes, all earthly ambitions, all earthly wishes, all earthly dreams. One commentator says at the time Jesus said these words, so he says, if anyone would come after me, They might have been rendered, if anyone wishes to follow me, these are the steps I follow. If you want to follow in my steps, let him be prepared to be led out to public execution following my example. It's like Jesus is saying, do you still want to confess me as Messiah? Do you still wish to follow me? I remember a young life leader of mine discipling me, and this is going back way, way long time ago. And he says, not when we're evangelizing do we want to talk people out of following Christ, but it's almost like if you want them to count the cost of discipleship, let them know up front that there is a cost. And the cost is, are you willing? See, what does it mean to deny yourself? It means abandoning your allegiance. Listen carefully to these words. It means abandoning your allegiance to your natural life your ambitions, your interests, regarding them as irrelevant. One commentator put it, to follow Christ, a person must become apostate from his egocentric self. Now that will be a battle for all our lives. But if you're holding on to your rights, saying, I have the right to do what I want, you have encountered the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. You have to at least have the commitment to say, he is my king. I abandon my allegiance to my natural self. I abandon my allegiance to me. Now that will be, there's a reason the Apostle Paul, when he applies the words of Jesus, talks about the doctrine of mortification and putting to death what belongs to our spirit. Because our egocentric self is always our greatest enemy. Until we get a different view of God. Until we get a biblical view of the gospel. See, self-denial becomes 
an obvious component of discipleship when we realize that we are no longer our own because we belong to Christ. We can deny ourselves when we realize that Jesus denied himself first. We can take up our cross when we realize Jesus took up his cross. And who did he take up his cross for? Do you think we're somehow friends of Jesus? Oh, he took up his cross for guys who are, yeah, we blow it. We gossip and we lust and we lie. No. The scriptures say, for while you were yet enemies, hostile and hating God, Jesus Christ died for you. Do not see yourself as a friend of Jesus that Jesus died for. You were an enemy that he laid down his life for. You were spitting in his face. You were putting the crown of thorns. We were, I was, mocking him in the crowd. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And he died for us to, yes, make us his friends, make us his children, adopt us as sons, justify us, and even more than that, make us his spouse, make us his bride. And when we come to realize that, when we challenge our deep-rooted, deep-hearted suspicion of God, all of a sudden the words for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, look at this, lose life for my sake. You're losing your life for the sake of being married to Jesus, for Jesus going to hell for you, of Jesus taking his cross for you, of Jesus having you for all eternity so that you will never be disgraced, you will never be condemned, you will never be shamed. All of a sudden, the goodness of God is something you go, I should be, hold allegiance to me and my rights, I gladly give them up. See, the paradox is that in belonging to him, losing yourself, you actually fulfill the purpose for which you were created. In losing yourself. See, if you preserve your life by remaining in charge, of calling the shots, of doing what seems so logical to you, it results in permanent separation from God. Let me close with this classic quote from C.S. Lewis, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, put it this way. He says, give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Father, we pray that we would look to Christ, that we would look at abandoning ourselves as good news. Yes, it seems like a paradox, abandoning what is right in our own eyes, but that's what we were created for. We were created, you built us 
for you to be our king, and a king who would go to a cross for us, a king who says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and I must die. Oh, Father, I pray that our hearts would melt with the idea that this king, this king we're swearing allegiance to, actually loves us, and there is no greater love. Father, teach us to melt and to encounter that love. In Jesus' name, amen.